I'm Abby Nemec, and this is A Time for Horses. Many people have sighed for the good old days and regretted the passing of the horse. But today, when only those who like horses own them, it is a far better time for horses. C.W. Anderson You're listening to a podcast about people and horses. Each episode, I take a look at a true story that connects somehow to horses, horse people, or the horse business. I'll tell you the story, sure, but I'm also going to tell you why I think it's a story worth telling. So, set the cruise control, step onto the treadmill, pick up a pitchfork, or pour another cup of coffee. I've got a story to tell you. Shake it! Break it! Episode 1, Watermark. I am a big fan of horses, and they have been a part of my life since before I was a part of my life. But I can enjoy them just fine on my own without needing to launch a podcast about them. So what's this all about? You see, there's a little more to it than just the horses. Truth of the matter is, when you put people and horses in the same place, there are always going to be some great stories that come out of it. Things have a way of happening. There are always backstories that tell how things happen. There are stories from history that help us to understand the present. And of course, there are always stories that will make you laugh or cry or just say, wow. Me personally, I like stories that are somehow new. Either I've never heard them before, or maybe never heard them like this before. I even like scary stories sometimes, simply because they challenge me to be brave. Put simply, I love a ripping yarn. And if you do too, I hope you'll enjoy what we put together for you here. Here's another thing about me and stories. My favorites are the kind of thing I call road trip stories. Did you ever get in the car with somebody at the beginning of a super long trip and then say to them something like, so tell me how you ended up moving here? Or so tell me the story of how you ended up with this job? Or so tell me about what's happened in your life since the last time I saw you? That kind of story starts as far back as it needs to. And it goes on however long it needs to go on. And it includes all of the details, the explanations, the side stories, the extra context, and everything, because there is no real reason to cut it short or leave anything out. You tell the whole story. Well, those are the sort of stories I want to share with you here on A Time for Horses. Some of them will be fairly short, and I'm going to try to stick to something between 40 minutes and an hour per episode. But if the story turns out to be longer, I don't want to cut it short to fit the format. I'd rather make it two episodes long, or whatever it takes, to tell the whole story. I also hope to get you at least one episode a month. I'm sorry for those of you who like a weekly routine for your podcasts, but the rest of my life, including a legitimate job and spending time with my family and my own horses, is probably going to get in the way of that sort of production schedule. So I'd rather plan one a month for now and maybe move that up later 
rather than try to do more than is possible and fall flat. In any case, in order for you to have a sense of what these stories are going to be like, first, I want to take you for a little wander around inside my mind. You see, I have lived my entire life in the northeastern part of the United States. This is one of the oldest parts of the U.S., about half of the original 13 colonies, and we have the advantage that when the Europeans came here to settle their colonies, they knew for certain that what they were going to do was worth documenting for posterity. Now, I know, compared to many of the world's cultures, our documented history dating back three, four, five hundred years is pretty puny, and I'm not even going to start on the unspeakable things the Europeans did to the indigenous people. However, I do think it's pretty remarkable that New England was colonized by people who had this idea that they were going to keep track of what happened. This also all took place after the advent of printing. Paper was widely available, and as a society, people were beginning to be pretty generally literate. So really, it's pretty cool that we actually know what happened here from the very beginning. In my family, since we actually go back a ways in this part of the country, we were raised to understand the importance of appreciating how things change over time. As original New Englanders and Northeasterners, we are pretty fiercely proud of what happened here, since it kind of made a big splash, don't you think? Eventually, it sort of went viral. So, having lived in this general area all of my life, so far, I've seen a lot of things change over time. I have this sort of way of looking at things that I see the things that are physically there now, the roads, the signs, light poles, homes, businesses, but I also see the way it used to look before. Whether the roads have been moved or widened or closed, maybe a building used to be there and now it isn't, or maybe it used to be small and it's larger now. Anyway, it's almost like a watermark on a piece of paper or a picture. I see both the old thing and the new thing at the same time. Like the way you look at someone you've known for a long time and you see the person they are now, but also the person you knew before. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I've got a small barn that's about 75 feet from my house. When the barn was built, we dug a deep trench and buried water below the frost line and laid conduit for electricity in a phone line so I could call the veterinarian from the barn if there were an emergency. The house and the barn are both late 20th century, but I look around and I think how different this experience was for me when the barn was first built. We never added the phone line in the electrical conduit because I got a cordless phone for the house that I could carry to the barn. But now, I don't usually even bother with that because my cell phone is always in my pocket and I can call the veterinarian without using my hands at all. That change is only the last few years. I do things differently now, but I still know what it's like to do them the other way. Or how about keeping horses mm, 40 years ago? One thing was different. I didn't have a heated water tub, and I spent a lot of time breaking ice in rubber buckets. I have a physical, visceral memory of that experience. I also remember details about what it was like when I was a kid, even before that. 
So many of the things we do routinely now just didn't exist then. Treating the horses for parasites required the vet to come every six months and pass a nasogastric tube for medication. It was a big deal. Now we buy a highly effective product at the local store and administer it ourselves. Because of that, horses are routinely living 10 to 15 years longer than they did then. For many horses, their life expectancy has been doubled. So it's pretty easy to see back into the past if you're looking at something physical that you are familiar with and you've known over time, a person, a place, a thing. But what if you look at a place and you see the thing that was there before you arrived? This happens a lot when you're an adventurous kid, as I was, who likes to ride her horse in the woods in New England. My mom and I used to explore in the woods together. When I was a lot younger, you could actually do that without getting arrested. And what we saw was pretty cool. We saw old roads that were abandoned decades earlier, or even longer. We saw cellar holes of old buildings that had giant trees growing in the middle, so you knew the building itself had been gone 50 or 100 years. Sometimes there'd be a section of the forest where the vegetation was different, so you could see where the old pasture was. Plus, there were stone walls around it. To this day, you can ride into a remote section of the woods in this part of the country and find a giant lilac bush, which you know was originally planted there in someone's dooryard. You can find a row of fruit trees, the remains of some farmer's orchard, surrounded by a mature hardwood forest. If you look carefully and you use your imagination, you can see the old homesteads, the farms, the little neighborhoods, the way they were, like a watermark of the past right there in the present-day woods. Now, I don't know if you're really following me, but this thing I do, where I stand in one place and see back in time by imagining what was there before, I, I actually do that quite a lot. I think that way about people and places and the stuff we do. It gives me a sense of being connected to the past, and it reminds me that this time, right now, is only a part of a long historical timeline. I may not have a memory of the time that I'm looking back to, but I can always imagine it. There is a house at the end of my road that used to be an inn. It's a pretty old building. It dates back to the late 18th century when our town was founded. I'm told George Washington slept there. The road that passes by there now is pretty substantial. It's a numbered state route with a speed limit of about 45 miles an hour, which means people usually do at least 50 going by. But I've actually ridden my horse down that road, thinking what it would have been like if riding my horse was the only way I was likely to be there. Imagine wearing your reflective vest and hoping nobody spooks your horse on their way by at highway speed, and at the same time seeing this watermark of what was probably a pretty good road then, a road just wide enough for a pair of horse-drawn vehicles to pass. How wide is that? 15 or 20 feet of hard-packed dirt is probably a good guess. Today, if you count the gravel shoulder between the guardrails, it's better than 50 feet wide. 
paved, with a line painted down the middle. There's a bridge across the brook with sturdy concrete abutments that has withstood many hurricane-driven floods in my own memory. Now, there's no photograph of that spot from when the town was founded for obvious reasons, but I can stand there and think about what a bridge would have looked like if there was a bridge there at all. It would have been a short span built out of hardwood timbers with a simple truss overhead and gaps between the floorboards. I can lay that image right over the bridge I'm seeing today. And when I trot my horse down the road at a moment like that, I'm not quite sure which of those roads I'm really riding on. Another time that I might do this would be when I go out to the barn to feed my horses. I have a motion-sensing light at the barn, so I march out there day or night, flip on the lights, toss out the hay that I've bought and had delivered, and fill the water tub. All told, just feeding and watering takes about 10 minutes day or night, summer or winter. Think about this. I have a heated, insulated tub for the horses to drink from in the winter. In the summer, I can unwind a length of hose, drag it to the tank, and then lift the handle on the frost-free hydrant. Or in the winter, I carry out a few plastic buckets to the heated tub. So 12 months out of the year, I'm able to feed my horses in the dark or light with hardly any change to my routine. What would that look like if it were mm, 1910? Odds are good, living out here, I'd be hand-pumping the water from a well that someone had dug by hand. Now, have you ever pumped water by hand? I have. You've seen it in the movies. You have to stand at the pump and push the handle up and down and up and down and up and down until the water comes gushing out. And you have to catch it in your pail, trying not to get wet into the bargain. Now, if you don't use the pump for a while, you will need to pour water back down it to prime the pump. So when you've filled your pail, you have to save some water aside. If it's cold out, you have to put that water aside in the house for later so it doesn't freeze. Now, a horse drinks at least 10 gallons of water each day. Each horse. If you just put that out for the horse in the winter the way we do now, a good amount of it will freeze before you come back, so you can't just hang up a bucket for them to drink out of when they feel like it. In 1910, you water the horses a few times a day. And think about the hay. Today, I buy my hay in bales that are folded up by a baling machine that's pulled by a diesel tractor. I pay a few dollars a bale to the hay farmer to bring the hay here and put it in the barn. At the turn of the 20th century, hay would have been cut by hand. And I mean cut by hand with a scythe. And after it was dry, it would be tossed, again by hand, with a hay fork onto a wagon pulled by the very horse that's going to eat the hay several months later. That hay is then lifted by a hoist and a grapple fork up into the hay mow, probably again lifted by the horse. Me? I march out to the barn on a summer evening after I get back from my day job, however many miles away. The motion-sensing light turns on and I flip the switch when I get out there to light up the place like a prison yard. 
It is not unusual for me to stop and look around me at a moment like that. Now, nobody had horses in this barn a hundred years ago because this was probably part of a sheep pasture around that time. Even so, if I were here doing this then, I'd be doing it pretty differently. So I imagine from time to time, what was the experience that people had 20, 50, 150 years ago doing just normal daily things? And then that train of thought leads me to imagine what life was like for their animals. I go to the barn, my horses greet me, I scratch their ears, and they are here today with me. They're new horses, sure, but they're not that different from the other horses who've had a place in my life in the past. Today, people have horses, mules, chickens, dogs, cats, hedgehogs, and reptiles in our lives, and the sensibility of the 21st century encourages us to treat them in humane and compassionate ways. It's quite ordinary for people today to discuss how our animals really experience life. I can only think that the horses of today, handled and cared for with 21st century sensibility, are not so different from the one horse who, for hours on end, covering miles and miles, carried George Washington to the inn at the end of my road. Neither are the horses of today very different from the ones who pulled the wagons to put up their own hay to feed their stablemates in the winter, or carried their humans on a buffalo hunt, or went into war, or moved the freight from the depot into the bustling city. There are people, and there are horses, and they are very different. But there is also a place in the middle where horses and people meet. We've been there, the people and the horses, for thousands of years. You can see it, can't you? It looks like a watermark, just over there by the river. Thanks for spending this time with me here on A Time for Horses. I'll be back in a few weeks with part one of our first story, and I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. It's the first episode of a multi-part story about a remarkable horse who seemed to have forgotten she was a horse. In the meantime, the thing that really makes a good podcast great is always more listeners. So take a quick moment to let just one friend know that you found our show and encourage them to trot on over here and check us out. You can like, follow, or add us and then share, tweet, or just tell someone the old-fashioned way that you're looking forward to the next episode. If you're listening to the show on the web, you probably already know that our website is atimeforhorses.com, where you'll find the notes for this episode, as well as some handy-dandy step-by-step instructions for how to subscribe to the show for free, 
so that you'll never miss an episode. Thanks for giving me your ear space. I'll see you next time.